You give Teller from Jerusalem 20 minutes, and he'll give you the education of a lifetime. King of the storytellers and the Shakespeare of the Torah world. Here is Rabbi Hanok Teller. Welcome back to Teller from Jerusalem as we begin our new episode. And we resume. We're talking about the Zionist Congress. Jews are finally gathering to not be bystanders on the stage of history, but to be actually involved in shaping their own destiny. The troubling question that could be posed to Herzl, to the delegates in Basel, or in fact to anyone, to any Jew was, how could a people maintain and sustain their dream to return to their ancient homeland when they had never seen it? And most likely, they never would. And they're doing this for two millennia. How could they keep alive memories of a land which they'd never seen? This question we've already addressed in earlier episodes, but it's worth repeating this concept. The genius of Jewish tradition was that in Jewish liturgy and in the holidays, they always invoked the past in a way that would keep the past present and current and real. No matter what, the land of Israel was always the central focus. When Jews pray three times a day, it's always focused towards the land of Israel and Jerusalem. They fast every single year on the day that the temples were destroyed. In the grace after meals, it says, Praised are you, Lord, who rebuilds Jerusalem. At the conclusion of the Passover Seder, just like at the conclusion of the Yom Kippur service, the Holy State of the Year it concludes with the words, Next year in Jerusalem. At a Jewish wedding, the groom does not depart for the wedding canopy until ashes are dabbed on his head to remember the destruction of the temple that lay in the ruins of fire. And at the very culmination of the wedding ceremony, under the wedding canopy, it ends with the breaking of a glass to commemorate that albeit this is our greatest joy for this couple, at this moment we remember that Jerusalem lays still in ruin. There's many other religious practices that invoke the same ability to keep alive the dream of Zion and of Jerusalem. That's why, as Daniel Gordas explains, that Herzl's book, The Judenstadt, was so enthusiastically received. He was saying nothing more than what the Jewish soul had understood throughout the ages. Wherever the Jews had lived, be it North Africa, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, they never felt welcomed. But their soul understood no matter where they were, they belong going back to the land of Israel. As Rabbi Bowman's father once said, we had plenty of nice exiles, but we have to remember where we belong. And that truly home is in the land of Israel. Herzl wrote that after he redeemed his own people, he intended to work towards to redeem the Africans in America. Pretty ambitious and uh, somewhat boastful of him. The fact of the matter is that Herzl died at the age of 44, unable yet to redeem his own people, but he certainly set the motion in progress, and so this dream was never fulfilled either. An early slogan of the Zionists was, a land for people who had no land, and a people for a land that had no people, which means Israel was a province of Turkey. It was poor, malaria-infested, underpopulated, so it was a land without a people. For up until then, all the Jews were trying to get out of Europe and of Russia and go to America. By the end of the 19th and the beginning of the 20th century, nearly 2 million Jews escaped to America. So one more time. Because the land was poor and malaria-infested, it was a land without a people, and the Jewish people that were then persecuted 
and prosecuted and suffered wherever they were, they were a people without a land. Zionism was to rectify these two problems. Basically, we can summarize, there were three motivations to ascend, again, employing the rabbinic term, ascend to the land of Israel. We can call them for religious reasons, for national reasons, and also practical reasons. As for the religious reasons, just as Abraham was commanded to leave his land and settle the land of Israel, which was promised to his children, which did not yet exist, there is a commandment for a Jew to live in the land of Israel. As to why the majority of Jews do not live in the land of Israel and disobey this commandment, it's a controversial subject. Uh, there is dispensations in halacha for certain reasons not to be in the land of Israel, but I'd rather not weigh in on this because it's controversial. But with your permission, let's dive in a little deeper as to the profounder reasons why it's so important for a Jew to live in the land of Israel. Firstly, the Torah is comprised of 613 commandments. Now, 613 is a very important number to a Jew because of the fact there are 613 commandments, 248 positive, 365 negative. Now, to the non-Jew, especially if one has connection with Jews or they are an astute observer, they can't be called an observant Jew because they're not Jewish, but they, uh, if they have interactions, they know that to the Jews, 613 is an important number. How often is 613 appended to people's email addresses? How many people, I shouldn't say this so publicly, how many people's codes to their lock at home is 613? As a matter of fact, when I visited Plainview, Long Island, uh, Rabbi Portnoy of blessed memory was the rabbi then, and I had come to visit to be a scholar in residence over a weekend, and he told me he just had a visit from the police for security inspection. And I said, how did it go? He said, they said, Rabbi, everything is fine, but we didn't check the alarm code. Now, if your code is 613, now I don't even know what this means, but whatever it means, all the thieves know 613, make sure you change it. He said, nah, that's not my code. As soon as the cops left, he went to change the code. Now back to 613 commandments. A large number of them cannot be fulfilled other than in the land of Israel. Thus, one who wants to achieve the fullness of what the Torah expects from him or her, they have the edge of fulfilling this mitzvot, these commandments, in the land of Israel, which cannot be fulfilled elsewhere. Performing commandment is a big deal. Before performing a commandment, you make a blessing, which says, who has sanctified us with his commandments. We believe that you get sanctified, and performing the commandments cloaks you in divine sanctity, and gives you the spiritual ability to connect with the infinite and indeed to connect with the Almighty. The rabbinic sages have expressed that the land of Israel is the natural soil for a Jew to live. If you plant a petunia in petunia soil, it will grow as a petunia. If you plant it where cactus grow, it's not going to work. So for a Jew, the natural soil will be the land of Israel. That's where they're going to get the natural nourishment, put them outside the land of Israel, they'll be deprived of this nourishment. It's further been taught that the Jewish nation can achieve its spiritual maximum when we as a people are united. Being scattered across the globe, how much more so? Subjugated, scattered, denies this possibility. Hence, the chance of a Jew to be assimilated overseas, not in the land of Israel, and drifting from their heritage is increased, where in Israel, predominantly among Jews, the chance of assimilation is decreased. Accordingly, the best chance for religious fulfillment is going to be in the land of Israel. Now, the way the world is, is that generally when people are exiled from their land, over course of time, 
they lose their connection. I have to imagine that Irish who left in the famines of Ireland and came to America don't have that strong, great sense to go back to Ireland. And the Poles who left Poland to go to Chicago don't have that great sense to go back to Chicago, to go back to, to Poland. But despite 2,000 years of exile, the Jews have always cherished the source of going back to the land of Israel, and that's been the focus of their prayers. Herzl pinned his hopes on Kaiser Willem II as the most likely man to deliver Palestine to the Jewish people because Imperial Germany was emerging as the patron and protector of the Ottoman Empire. And it was the Ottomans, the Turks, that controlled that tract of land that was known as Palestine. So based on Herzl's badgering the Kaiser, he agreed to meet with Herzl and then to meet on behalf of the Zionists with the Sultan. The Kaiser had no soft spot for the Jews, but he envisioned, like so many other anti-Semites, Jews with their wealth and their influence, if they had it, whether they had it or they didn't have it, but he assumed, like all anti-Semites assume, there must be great wealth and influence. He would be good for the Kaiser and he would enable the Kaiser's penetration into the Middle East. So the meeting with the Kaiser and the Sultan took place in 1898. The Sultan would not hear of Jewish purchase of land or of any Jewish immigration into the land of Israel. Now, in a clash of interest between Herzl's desire of the Zionists to come to the land of Israel, the land at that time known as Palestine, which was under the rule of the Ottomans, when there was a clash between the Sultan of Turkey and Herzl's imploring the Kaiser to work on advocate on behalf of Jewish interests, uh, the Jews never stood a chance. Obviously, the Kaiser is going to be much more interested in what the Sultan says than what a bunch of Jews say. So when the Sultan met with Herzl, he had the slightest interest in granting what Herzl sought. He wasn't going to give a charter. So what the Zionists were proposing was, just give us a charter to irrigate, to uh, develop some land. But the Sultan was much more astute than that. He knew that the Jews didn't want to charter a little land. What they wanted was autonomy and to create their own state. And he also understood that if he would give in to this request of the Zionists, not only would he do something which was not in his own interest, but it would certainly be anathema to the people who lived in Israel, the Muslims, who didn't want Jews to come there. That would endanger his own rule and his own life. He did not wish to do anything that would put his life at risk. The Sultan's only interest in Herzl, just like the Kaiser, was his hope that Herzl represented important financial interests that could benefit him. And also the fact was, as Herzl was a correspondent for a leading newspaper, the Sultan's image was tarnished for good reason. He hoped that Herzl could change the image of being truthful to being non-truthful and be positive about who the Sultan really was. Basically, Herzl had struck out with the Kaiser. He also struck out with the Sultan. So therefore, he turns to the British for help. He moves the fourth Zionist Congress from Basel to London and thought about chartering British territory in East Africa, known not so geographically accurate as Uganda, albeit it's probably more like Kenya. He also considers chartering and developing Cyprus and Egypt. That's going to be a temporary solution until they can finally get into Palestine, which is contemporaneously controlled by the Turks. So the plan is we need an immediate solution for Jews to get them out of the suffering in Russia and Eastern Europe. And if we don't have a place to bring them to, which would ideally be Israel, then at least a temporary place. 
It didn't work with the Sultan. It didn't work with Kaiser Wilhelm. So now his hope is the British will allow him to charter territory. And he doesn't care if it's in East Africa or Cyprus. The important thing is some kind of temporary home for the Jews. There were two factors that worked in Herzl's favor as far as the British were concerned. Firstly, and we'll see about this when we get to the Balfour Declaration, the British were concerned that there were waves of Jews going from Europe to America. Now that America was curtailing the Jews coming to America, the British were afraid that the Jews would come to Britain. They certainly didn't want this. So one thing we were working in their favor was maybe we can find another place for the Jews to go so they won't have to come onto the British Isles. The other interest was is that the British wanted to promote their settlement of their colonies. By sending Jews there, that would help them settle the colonies that were now uh, bereft of people. But now, yeah, 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 yeah. After the Kishnev pogrom in April 1903, Herzl was gripped with a sense of urgency. He must quickly and expeditiously get the Jews out of Russia and of Europe into a home of their own. The Turks taught him that they were inflexible. So the most prudent move would be to create a national home for the Jews, if not in Palestine, somewhere, if not in Europe, then, if it need be, in East Africa. At the Sixth Zionist Congress, the last one in which Herzl will still be alive, he pushes for a vote on East Africa. That is almost going to bring about the undoing of the Zionist Congress because there's such strong opposition. And the Russians vote against it. They even walk out of the Congress. And even those delegates from Kishinev vote against this. Herzl is incredulous. They have a noose around their neck and they don't want to go to a place unless it's going to Palestine. But Palestine is not available. He's trying to find some interim place because he knows that time is running out. Time is running out meaning it's running out for Russian Jewry. It's running out for European Jewry and time is running out for Herzl. Herzl's 44 years old. He has a heart condition. He's schlepping around the world. It's taking its toll. Before he was the most striking man you could ever imagine. And now you see how he's withered from all of his travel and no respite. At this Congress, the sixth one, is 23-year-old Vladimir Zev Jabotinsky, who's going to become a very important, albeit controversial, Zionist. He voted against Herzl's proposal in East Africa, and he says, and I'm really telescopically condensing, that the simple argument to go to our homeland of Israel is more important, counterbalances thousands of other practical arguments. But Herzl was, after all, a pragmatist. He saw that time was running out for Russian Jewry, and as we said, he saw time was running out for himself. Uh, he was not raised in a home with Jewish heritage. He had only looked as a logician, weighing the odds, the benefits without their spiritual component in his abacus. Thus confronted with an existential dilemma, with no religious or spiritual red lines, his proposals and solutions can vary between either Jews converting to Christianity or going to Uganda, when the option of going to Palestine is not on the table. His arrogance also works to his disadvantage. Many viewed him as their savior. And in that role as the savior, he has to deliver the cookies. The Ottoman Sultan refuses to agree. He's not budging. The Kaiser has demonstrated that he will be of no help. The savior has to save his people, and the ideal goal was no longer an option. So when you're running for your life, and that's precisely as Herzl viewed it, we are running for our lives, and it doesn't matter then where you're going, you have to run for your life. If the main door is locked, logic dictates that you search for a different door. 
Setting up this equation in his mind, spiritual dimensions and biblical promises simply were not a factor. I might refer to this, and I hope I don't sound vulgar, as the perspective of a proctologist. The average person looks at the world at large, which is bright and gay. Proctologist sees only a dark, narrow cave that's bereft of light. And this particular proctologist, he's had a lot of training. Herzl has an undergraduate degree from the University of Vienna, where he witnessed and experienced overt anti-Semitism. He had a graduate degree from major intellectuals in Europe, like Goering, who we spoke about before, who was respected and revered and spoke about Jews in the most obscene way. He saw what happened in Hungary, where there was an anti-Semitic party which wanted to expel the Jews. They provoked pogroms. He had in his background also degrees from France and from Paris, where they said, La mort le juif, death to the Jews after the Dreyfus trial. So this proctologist sees only what he sees. And he sees now there's a new strain of anti-Semitism, which is more malignant than its predecessor. And therefore, anti-Semitism means that up until now, it could be just a bartender, telling, a bartender telling crude jokes. You could laugh or dismiss them. But now when the nations are united in their hatred of the Jew, it's going to be taken, it has to be taken much more seriously with a much more important solution at the end of the road. Thanks for listening to Teller from Jerusalem, where this series takes an intelligent and thought-provoking look at the past in order to acquire a perspective on the present. Spread knowledge by giving us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe. Join us next time for a brand new episode and be sure to visit tellerfromjerusalem.com where you can find more details about the show and other useful information. Check out the site store and just by inserting the TFJ code, you'll receive an additional 10% discount off the already very reduced prices of all Hanoch Teller products, books, lectures, and documentaries. And remember, don't forget, you can get Teller from Jerusalem on any podcast platform or go to tellerfromjerusalem.com. Please see our YouTube channel for a richer than just audio experience with spiffy visual components and elements, also accessible from the Teller from Jerusalem website, where the list of general and specific credits are listed.